Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Steward is transforming agriculture by equipping regenerative farms and food systems with the capital they need to grow. As a mission-driven financial partner, Steward works closely with agriculture businesses to scale their operations, improve the health of their lands and waters, and boister farm-to-regional food systems. To date, Steward has provided over $15 million in business loans to fund 75 unique projects backed by more than 1,500 participating lenders. Steward is proud to be a certified B Corp., Seek financing or support a loan campaign at GoSteward.com. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today my guest is a U.S. Navy veteran, Liz Riffle, who raises grass-fed and finished bison in West Virginia. Riffle Farms was the first commercial bison operation in the state and also the first to field harvest animals for state-certified commercial sale. Liz is passionate about meat transparency and humane practices. Welcome, Liz. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, I'm excited to be here with you. And that's the correct pronunciation of your farm name, correct? And last it name? is Riffle. Okay. Yes. All right. Always worried about that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, talk to us a little bit. So you were a U.S. Navy veteran, and then you got into farming. Talk to us a little bit about kind of your story. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it is an interesting one. So basically, yes, a uh, Navy veteran. I was uh, part of the Navy nurse corps and I became a nurse because I was super passionate about health. And I did that for many, many years, but a big piece of that is you get what you put in type thing into your body. Um, mm-hmm. I saw that firsthand on a regular basis all across the country. Um, cause we were stationed, you know, from coast to coast. Um, but I also, I come from, um, a background with horses. So I grew up riding and I rode competitively. And even while I was in the military traveling around the country, I volunteered at different horse rescues and would help them retrain and rehab some of their horses. Um, so I love being in a farm environment and that was always a space for me to get away from, you know, everything and rest Mm -hmm. and relax and kind of like, you know, get my brain back on track. So I always knew that that's something that I wanted to go back to when I was going to get out of the military. Um, I met my husband, you know, we were nurses together. We traveled around the country together as active duty. And then I chose to get out because I wanted to start a family. And at that same time, interestingly enough, you know, we were starting to get really picky about what we were cooking in the Mm -hmm. house and um, what we were putting in our own bodies and trying to source that and find farmers. And I was starting to do some reading. Um, from that perspective. And I picked up a book called Eating Animals mm-hmm. by Jonathan Fower. And he talks a lot about the slaughter process in the United States and what it really takes to get a live cow to a piece of steak on your plate. And I was horrified. Mm. <laughs> I am an animal lover, first and foremost. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is what we do to living, breathing animals. And I think I'm going to have to become a vegetarian, Mm. but I love meat and I'm a carnivore through and through. So that really wasn't the answer. And to be truthful, just me becoming a vegetarian, wasn't going to fix the system. So 
I wanted to get into the meat processing system to be the change that I wanted to see in the slaughter facilities. And come to find out, I'm not the only one that has that idea. There's all these lovely farmers around who have similar ideas and mentalities like I do. And it's been a wonderful community that I've stepped into, um, folks and farmers who want humanely harvested meat. Um, Mm -hmm. And basically, interestingly enough, it just started with me traveling around the country as a military nurse, which is kind of (laughs) crazy. Yeah. Absolutely. So then when you started with bison, why bison? Right. So bison specifically can be field harvested. Mm. So they do not have to be brought to a slaughter facility alive. Um, We do bring them to a processor just because the processor is set up to handle an animal that large and cut it up into meat and package it appropriately for commercial sale. Um, So we work very closely with our butcher, but that animal never actually has to step foot on a trailer and off of a trailer at a slaughter facility. And that was really important to me because I did not want my animals to be scared to death at the last moments of their life. Like Uh many animals are in a slaughter facility. It is a place that they are unfamiliar with. It smells funny. Um, they have to be loaded and unloaded and transported, you know, there, it just is very uncomfortable for them. And I was very passionate about by stepping that entire process. And so we chose to use bison. Okay. So explain that a little further, the, the bison that they don't have to be at a facility. Is that a USDA rule? It is interestingly enough. So bison are considered a non-amenable species. And so they are allowed to be inspected in the field, quote unquote, um, because they are considered exotic slash wild, which they are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I wouldn't say exotic is the correct term because interestingly enough, bison are actually our national mammal. So I wouldn't say they're an exotic species, Um, but they're definitely a wild species. And um, even FSIS and USDA, you know, those um, organizations that are in charge of those inspection processes um, allow these animals to actually be put down in the field because they recognize how hard they are to get onto and off of a trailer. Um, So we utilize that option. Many people do not. Many people do not know that uh, that option even exists. And I have even talked to state ag departments, USDA facilities who look at me like I'm crazy. And they're like, Uh there's no way that's allowed. And I was like, it's your own rule. (laughs) It's definitely allowed. Yeah. All right. So very few people do that. (laughs) That really interests me because here's my thing. If that's legal for bison, why isn't that same thing legal for all species? If we, if we say it's okay for bison, why, I mean, how they're still mammals, they're still red meat for a lot of these things. I completely agree with you on that. And I don't understand that perspective. Um, The Mm. way it's been explained to me um, in the past is that our eats a lot more beef than it does bison. And so when a beef or a cow is put down, it is sent to a lot of different households and it's harder to track. And And in the case there was, a foodborne illness issue, it could potentially make 
hundreds of households sick. And they're kind of banking on the idea that bison, when I field harvest one animal, it's not going to hundreds of households and doesn't have the potential to make hundreds, if not thousands of people sick. Um, so that's how the rule has been explained to me. It's kind of along the similar lines of what they do with poultry. So there is a poultry exemption and you can harvest up to 20,000 birds on your own farm because again, you know, one bird goes to one family, you know, onesies, twosies here and there, they, they think the spread of foodborne illness is less, um, by doing that versus when it's in, you know, a factory setting where they're doing gosh, tens of thousands of birds almost a day or a yeah. week. So, well, and it's actually by state by state for the poultry. And like, for, uh, I think it's uh, Al- uh, Georgia that just actually literally put basically pretty draconian meth- uh, restrictions on the exemption. So the federal is 20,000, mm-hmm. but by state by state, but it comes back to your point of, okay, a bison, okay. There's not that many being harvested. It's going to go to a lot less households. There should be a small farm scale, um, is for me is kind of what I would recommend is I think that the, we should, that there should be an exemption for that under a certain number. I mean, like maybe under a hundred a year, you can harvest up to a hundred field harvest, um, sure. you know, beef. Um, so anyway, that's interesting. I know that like right now the prime act is working its way th- into the, trying to work its way into the latest farm bill. Yeah. I, I'm going to try to work. Um, I might reach out to some of the sponsors on that and see what we can do to add. Seeing that this is already in the system, I don't think, I think you're right. So many people don't realize this. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'll see what I can push on my end and see what we can, because if that could be in there, that would be really awesome to see that happen. Um, Yeah, it would be uh, great to see. We, I had to work with the state of West Virginia for about three years before they would allow me to field harvest my bison. Mm. Um, but now they know I'm coming for him in regards to beef. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're aware. <laughs> yes. So, all right. So let's talk through the field harvesting. Is that something where, um, you just, uh, just walk through that process and then walk through some of the equipment needed for that. It's actually very simple. So we typically choose to put an animal down early in the morning when it still is cool and calm outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are required to have a licensed sharpshooter. Um, take the shot so that we can make sure the animal is not going to have to be shot multiple times. Um, and in order for me to sell the animal um, in pieces, so I call it being quote unquote staked out, you know, I just want to sell mm-hmm. you one steak versus a quarter. There yeah. has to be an inspector present. So I have a state inspector that comes up with my sharpshooter um, who also happens to be my butcher. Um, just because okay. we're a small town, ta- we're just a small yep. town. So it, it works that way. Um, so he comes up, we have typically picked out an animal or two and move them to a separate pasture so that they're not in with our entire herd of 40, you know, to 50 animals. Um, cause just in case something does go wrong, yeah. they're mm-hmm. easy to see and they're standing there eating grass or, a treat of an apple or something like that. And my butcher basically almost walks up to him mm-hmm. and takes a shot directly into the head between the eyes. So. Yeah. So it's just like a regular beef. Well, similar to a regular beef, if you've ever feel done one of those. Right. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah. And then do yes. they have a, uh, some sort of uh, system to hoist them up and obviously gut them there, drain the blood. 
Yeah. So the only thing we have to do is the animal does have to be stuck upon being shot so that the blood can run out or as much of it as possible. And we just utilize a tractor and chains, the tractor okay. that we, mm-hmm. we have to pull hay and we just chain up the back legs and hoist it up, allow some more of that blood to run off. We actually put the animal on the back of a flatbed and it is then transported to my processor who's about 40 minutes down the road. The state requires that the animal be eviscerated within one hour of that shot happening. Uh-huh. Um, so you have to kind of see state by state what their requirements are, but I think they're all pretty similar. And so you uh-huh. would have to have a facility that's pretty close or a facility that's on your own property. Yeah. Um, yeah, because that is the part that the state's really picky about evisceration and they want to make sure once that carcass is opened, um, mm-hmm. it can potentially be contaminated and they want to make sure that's done in a clean space and they want to make sure they can get to the organs that they want to inspect. Um, gotcha. Okay. Like yeah. all the lymph nodes and the liver and, you know, things like that. So. Gotcha. Okay. So then it really, they're only killing and, um, draining on farm. It's everything else is still done in the facility. Correct. Okay. Very cool. All right. Let's talk a little bit about, um, the, after you, you basically stake them out, what happens to like your, your, the, the meat, where do you sell it? What kind of ways do you sell it? Yeah, we have done all kinds of things. So Um, We definitely sell quarter animals um, to anybody who wants to partake in that, but we typically take um, individual cuts and sell them at farmer's markets. That's where we started primarily. Okay. Um, We do farmer's markets all over the place. We actually sell um, at markets in Maryland um, and West Virginia, obviously, and also in Virginia. So we actually have a footprint as far east as Virginia Beach, just because my husband is still active duty and we were stationed down there and that's where all the people are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. we, I was going back and forth to visit him and I, and people were asking me to bring them bison meat. And I was like, all right, let me just bring a few coolers worth and set up at the farmer's market and I can sell this. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it ended up being explosively profitable um, okay. to do that. So. Yeah. So we primarily do farmer's markets and we just recently put in a farm store last year on our place, um, which we do have that open just once a week, just because we run a very lean operation. It's really Mm. just myself and my brother-in-law as full-time employees. Um, So there's not somebody really around to run a store um, on the regular. So we just do one day a week. Plus we're in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you really have to plan to get to us if you want to come to us to get meat. Um, but to be honest with you, we actually started, um, in 2021, we started playing around with, um, value added items. Okay. So things like bison, chili, uh, bison, mac and cheese, mozzarella stuffed bison meatballs. And, um, So we rented a commercial kitchen to be able to make those items and sell them at a farmer's market. And it was a huge hit and it Mm. makes a huge difference for our bottom line because I can then take one pound of ground bison and, you know, we sell it now at $15 a pound. But Mm -hmm. when I 
make it into a value-added item, I'm seeing anywhere from 36 to $57 a pound (laughs) that I end up making instead, which is amazing. Um, It takes a little extra work, you know, and I had to kind of figure out the rules and regulations around the commercial kitchen. Um, But once we figured that out and saw the profitability on that, um, Mm -hmm. we were super eager to put in our own commercial kitchen and we're currently in the process of finishing that up. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So talk to us a little bit more about that. Cause you run that through a, another company called the on, honest carnivore. Correct. Yes. Okay. And then, um, you also do some butchery classes. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So the honest carnivore is primarily that butchery class platform, um, for folks to come up and partake in a field harvest of an animal. Um, or just the cutting up of like quarters and how to actually get a ribeye off of an animal. Um, okay. so we've, we've kind of tailored it a couple different ways. Not everybody wants to witness a true field harvest, but it's interesting. We're getting more and more folks uh-huh. to come out for a lot of those events. They actually want to see what it takes to put an animal down and how to eviscerate it and things like that. So we do all kinds of classes. We obviously um, do bison butchery events, but we've also done, um, pig classes and poultry classes. And this year we're going to have a lamb class, um, on the schedule. So yeah, it keeps it interesting. So that's been a ton of fun. Interesting. So then with your farm, do you raise those other animals as well as the bison? We do not. So the honest carnivore ends up being a platform just to do those classes. And I, collaborate with local farmers to get those animals. And Uh basically the big piece of that is that I offer these farmers the opportunity to field harvest their animal for commercial sale. Um, So we field harvest that any of their animals, I can field harvest any animal and use it for a butchery class um, is, is basically what happens. So, cause I'm not selling that animal in pieces. I'm actually just selling a class ticket. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Yeah. Let's, let's pop back to the value added. So with the kitchen, you rented it. And now you're also working on your own kitchen, correct? Correct. Yes. We're, we're in the process of putting our own commercial kitchen in at the farm. Yes. Okay. And what's that going to look like? Did you have a specific size in mind or just talk us through a little bit about the process of figuring that out and making that all happen? Yeah, that is, um, interestingly enough, that's kind of a loaded question at this moment, just because we were thinking it was going to be super simple and we were just going to put in a commercial kitchen as in something that was like, I think the original size was 20 by 14. Mm -hmm. Um, the nice thing about, you know, the state of West Virginia is there's not a lot of rules and regulations around commercial kitchens. I didn't necessarily have to have this giant fire hood put in to the tune of $28,000 or something. So it was just really you know, three basin sinks, separate space for hand washing, you know, having my own ovens and cleanable counter spaces and extra freezer and storage space. And it was, it's just really pretty simple. Um, Mm -hmm. really the hardest part of that was, you know, which we're, we're in the process of, you know, connecting the plumbing, um, and really doing that piece. That's really what the hardest part was for the whole kitchen. Mm -hmm. Um, but my (laughs) butcher, as of, uh, November, uh, is out of, he's, he's not continuing his business. Mm -hmm. And so that's a problem. And we've thought about this 
in the past because that is the one piece of the puzzle that I don't own. And things like this could happen. You know, somebody could go Uh out out of business or, you know, I mean, all kinds of stuff. They could not cut our meat properly, things like that. So, um, so we've always thought about owning that piece, but now we were kind of pushed into owning that piece. So we've decided to add on to that commercial kitchen and make a space that we can actually eviscerate and cut up our own animals. Um, so it's a little bit bigger now. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, if I remember correctly, you worked with the steward on financing that. We did. Yes. Yes. So walk us through a little bit about that process. how did you find out about Steward? Yeah. So I actually found out about Steward from a friend of mine who does some ecological consulting for me. Um, he works or he owns his own savory hub, I should say, um, mm-hmm. in Virginia called the Rabinia Institute. Um, and so we've been working with him for some time and we were talking about putting in, you know, a commercial kitchen and maybe even a processing center at some point. And he's like, Hey, I have these friends that fund farmers Mm. and it's kind of an interesting model and you should check them out. Um, because we were having a hard time getting any type of funding because one, we are farmers. So we were, we look to the bank, we look like a risky business Mm -hmm. and two, we raise bison. So most banks are like, well, in the case you didn't pay me back, what the heck am I going to do with bison? Yeah, They're not a commodity. So they don't know how much they're truly worth. So they were like, heck no, we're not loaning you any money. Um, and we even had an issue with, you know, even some farm banks were really hesitant to loan a farmer like myself money who raises bison. It's an exotic species that they can't quantify. Mm. So when... Daniel, the owner of Rabinia Institute mentioned Steward. I was like, okay, let me, let me check them out. And Steward has a very interesting model where folks can invest in farm ideas and they can invest in agriculture. And so the um, percentage rate for getting a loan is definitely going to be higher than what it is at the bank, but it's because you're actually paying humans. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're you're paying people back who are investing in your idea. Um, which is great. And um, they're supposed to be short-term loans. They're not supposed to be, you know, like 30 plus years. They're supposed to only be a couple of years and you're supposed to um, be able to show how you can actually make that money back within that time frame. So um, it definitely fit in with what we wanted to do. And it was kind of a really cool system that we wanted to support. And we're hoping once we can pay off our loan that we can reinvest in the system and help somebody else, you know, get some of their farm equipment or um, processing, you know, funded. Yeah. And I would say too, the thing about Stuart is that the process you typically go through is a heck of a lot easier than trying to work with one of the big banks too. Heck yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. All right. So the Stuart loan, is that just funding the, all the processing slash uh, commercial kitchen space? Is that kind of what you structured that for? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Okay. And then let's talk about the processing space. How many square feet will that be? Yeah. So the processing processing space is going to end up being, um, 16 by 40. So what is that math? I'd have to do that math on my, on me again. Um, it's not, it's not a huge space, honestly. Uh, 600, Um, 640 square feet, 40 square feet. Yeah. So it's not a huge space, but I only have to do one, maybe two bison a month. Um, so we harvest anywhere from 15 
15 to 18 bison a year, we'd like to get up to 20 to 24. So I'm, you know, I'm not needing a space where I have to have 10 cows in there every day. Um, Mm -hmm. so that square footage actually works really great for us. And, um, we only need space enough to be able to hang an animal, eviscerate it, clean it off, you know, put it into a cooler. And then I have to have, um, counter space to cut and, uh, an oven and a couple other little pieces of equipment, like a grinder and a saw and things like that. And that's really about it. So it's pretty simple. Okay. And that will be, will that be a, that won't, will that be a USDA? It will not be USDA. It will be state certified. So the West Virginia state will certify it. Gotcha. Okay. And then will you still be able to sell across state lines or how does that work? Yes, we can, because of that non-amenable species um, term that they utilize. Yeah. So bison can be sold across state lines without USDA inspection because they are considered not amenable. Ah, I see a lot of mm-hmm. reasons why you went after these bison then. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Heck yes. From a regulatory standpoint, there's, yeah. you know, it's yeah. very limited. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Joining me is Dan from Steward, a mission-driven financial partner for farms across the U.S. Dan, let's talk aggregating. That's where you know farmers can provide products to, let's say, like a food hub, and the food hub maybe does some processing there, but then is the distribution or the last mile to the consumer. What makes that work, and what are the challenges? Aggregating just one part in the chain, producer processing, aggregation, and sales. And so it's about creating systems that that producers can sell under. I think one of the things I've noticed working in and understanding many producers is they don't all want to have to create their own brand and manage and do sales and do all the engagement, but how can they sell under a shared system that actually provides value to them that isn't just squeezing them as intermediary? So we've been financing aggregation infrastructure kind of last mile where it's a mix of shared aggregation for producers, value-added processing commercial kitchens where CPG companies and and makers can start to trial and use those products and retail restaurant sales, we are really selling high margin products through. And so I, I see aggregation as the combination of introducing people to products and showcasing products, and then being the exchange where people can buy goods and buy o- larger order flow and kind of really drive sales. Where I've seen success is these regional networks of producers who come together under a shared brand and start to aggregate. They don't all have to do it themselves. And I think that's where you start to get the, the volume to make a real impact. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, there's actually a local organic co-op here of a couple of different organic farms, certified organic farms that use that to put an outlet on a lot of their wholesale crops, which is awesome to see that developing here locally. Um, what do you feel is the major challenge there? Is it just um, literally the funding or is it the marketing? I think a lot of people start this simply, you know, them and a few other producers come together, they start to share some services, cross-sell products. And I think it's around the actual infrastructure that makes it challenging because to really do aggregation at scale, you do need some amount of infrastructure to move the products and put the facility together. And so a lot of the challenges in these kind of aggregation food hub type businesses is where's that capital going to come from that can be patient and that can give it the time to build the volume and get to the point where it can sustain itself. So the projects that we funded at Steward, such as Astoria Food Hub in Pacific Northwest, that's actually under construction now, you're bringing together a lot of the local producers and communities and makers to a space where they can showcase what they have 
and hopefully start to drive more sales from local buyers. And one of the main things that it's able to do that, that couldn't be done before is meet larger contracts with reliability. And I think that's, that's where there's a big gap in the market, which is people with bigger contracts can't find the producers to meet that reliably. Mm-hmm. And so if you can have aggregation around ideally processing and those two pieces in unison, you can start to get the supply reliably to, to the buyers, which then can bring everybody up to a higher level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, a great example would be like a kraut or a kimchi producer, which needs a thousand pounds of you know, Chinese cabbage every single week. And maybe one farm can't supply that, but between three or four or five farms, they can get what they need and that can give them the processing product they need. Exactly. And that reliability of, of sales and purchasing is really helpful for farms. You know, Relying on your own direct sales every week can be a challenge. So if you can balance some of that wholesale with your own direct outlets and you really got sustainability and diversity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. If you're looking for a non-traditional mission-driven financial partner who understands the business of regenerative agriculture, reach out to gosteward.com today. All right. Well, let's talk about bison a little bit more. Why bison in the aspects of pasture? So how do they deal with pasture? Are there specific strains that you're looking for when you decide to buy into the bi- a bison herd? Sure. Yeah. So, um, right. The bison are definitely much more than just a non-amenable species. They are the original regenerative story for America, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, They are the large mammals that created the plains and, you know, the tall grasslands Uh that once were out there and that they're currently trying to reclaim. Um, So bison are a little bit more efficient than cows are on grass, any type of grass. And they um, were technically native to our area. So bison actually would have roamed as far east as Washington, DC. They would have gone all the way to the coast. Oh wow. They just would not have stayed there for very long. They would have come during, you know, prime peak grass seasons and then they mm-hmm. they would have retreated um because they don't love to be hot. <laughs> yeah. Is yeah. also is also part of it. So but yeah the bison are basically we're utilizing those animals to regenerate our property like they would have out in the great plains basically okay so um yes and they're doing a great job of it (laughs) so then back to that second question is there specific strains that you go after or is it just you say hey when you're buying you're just buying bison yes there's actually two only two different versions of the bison um there's the great plains bison which we're all very familiar with with that massive giant head and they're Mm -hmm. super furry and they kind of sit lower to the ground. And there's actually a second version called a woods bison, which still looks very similar, but they mm. stand a little bit taller. Um, and they're not quite as broad in the shoulders. And they think that that's what would have technically been native to our area, just because of the hills and the hollers of West Virginia, they would have okay. had to have been able to pick through all of that. Yeah. Um, so we have both, because um, I'm trying to see which ones technically do better. Um, but ours also don't roam hundreds and hundreds of miles. You know, they really only roam the almost 70 acres that we have on our, on our property. So, yeah, you know, you know, if you're really getting science based on that, I, I may not see a difference between those two animals, but we technically have them both. Um, okay. yeah. So, but the big thing with bison as well is that they're 
um, instincts are still intact um, mm-hmm. to be herd packed animals. And that's what you want on a landscape to help regenerate it. That is how grasses themselves learned to grow. They were to large herds of grass eating Mm -hmm. animals and they get clipped and trampled on and, you know, they get pooped and peed on and there's the fertilizer and then they don't get touched for maybe a year. And then those animals come, come back. And so we are trying to mimic that these animals stay in nice close knit herd, close knit groups. And so they are on one space, eat everything, and then they move on which is, Mm. which is really what we, what we wanted for the land. They do mimic that obviously with cows using electric wire. Um, but our bison tend to stay mostly as a herd. We do have smaller pastures to kind of help facilitate that just because we don't have the predators that they have out West. Yeah. Um, so like I have pastures that are anywhere from two to 11 acres, um, just to make sure they do stay in a nice tight herd. Um, yeah, because there's really not much that messes with them in West yeah. Virginia. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. What does your fences look like? Yeah. So we have grand high tensile wire that's only about five feet tall. And um, two of the strands are hot. They're pretty hot. I mean, you touch them and it's uncomfortable. Um, it, yeah. it sends out a nice, a nice zap. So it's definitely a deterrent, but there's really no fencing you can put up that will keep a bison in if they want to get out. Mm. Um, so you really just have to keep them happy in their space. So they have to have obviously enough food, enough water, enough minerals, and they, um, need to feel like they're safe. And if any of those things are not happening in that pasture, they typically with our fence, they'll just jump, jump over it. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Which is, very interesting to watch this massive animal jump five and a half feet. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. And how many strands did you say that was again, you cut out there for a second. Sure. It is five strands. Okay. High tinsel. Yeah. Okay. So the top one's at five and a half. What, how far off the ground is the lowest one? Um, it really depends. Um, (laughs) just because we have so much undulation, but they're usually about a foot or so a foot and a half, I would say from the bottom. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the business side of your farm. You said it's you and your brother-in-law, I think you said, who are the main. Correct. Yeah. We're the full-time um, folks until my husband, Jimmy retires next year. And then he's going to, you know, get online with us. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's just the two of us. I do all the managing side of the house and Jeremy, my brother-in-law has graciously stepped in <laughs> Um, his background is as a diesel mechanic. Okay. Um, so he's Mr. Tractor. Okay. And, um, man, he can, he can do amazing things with a tractor. And so that's what he does on a daily basis. He's basically the farm manager, moves the animals, feeds them, make sure, you know, the water and stuff is there. Gotcha. And then I'm kind of the, the marketing, you know, mm-hmm. guru, you could say. Okay. Gotcha. And then you're doing the farmer's markets as well. Yes. 
Yes, we do all those ourselves. I do them and then I make Jeremy do them too. Okay. <laughs> so gotcha. he does have to do some of those. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the system. So, you know, on the farm systems are important. What systems do you feel like have been super important for you to set up in the business? Yes. Um, so communication for us is really big just because um, I, like I said, I'm back and forth between households a lot just because my husband is not Mm-hmm. currently in West Virginia. And so we have to have systems in place to communicate effectively. And so that things don't get missed. And I'm going to be completely honest with you. We're still working on this. We don't have a great system. We just started utilizing a application, I guess you could say called notion and O T I O N. Yeah. Which seems to be the answer thus okay. far. We've only been using it for like I don't know, like maybe four weeks. Yeah. Um, but for right now, it's a nice place to put down lists of things to do, documents people might need, like at a farmer's market, all of a sudden the inspector shows up, where is our electronic document, you know, for this certification? You know, it's yeah. all in the same space. Um, so, so far that seems to be great, but we've utilized everything from, oh my gosh, like Google Docs to, mm-hmm. you know, the list that come up in your Apple iPhone to just yep. text messaging threads and emails. And it was a giant mess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that's been the biggest thing for us is we had to get a good system in place for communication. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Absolutely. so we're working on that. What would you say if you could start your farm over again, you would do sooner in the business? That is a great question. Um, I wish I had a better system for communicating. That would okay. be good. Like if I had known, you know, which one would actually work for us um, like that, that would have been super helpful. So that we didn't miss markets or miss a customer coming up to the store or things like that. That would have been very helpful. Um, the other thing I would have done originally is we put in fencing. We're becoming professional fence putter inners. Mm. Um, but I think in the beginning, it would have been better from the regenerative standpoint to just put in all of our cross fencing. We should have just done it all at the, at one time, because we spent almost three years rotating animals through very, very large pastures. Um, so we, we only started out with like seven animals. So I'm Mm. talking like very few animals on very large pastures. Um, and we just couldn't get, you know, the grasses to work for us. And so if I had known now, what, how do you say that? If I had known, if I had known what I, then what I knew now, um, yeah, I would have just started from that standpoint and just put in the time and the effort when we had all the extra hands to do it, just Mm -hmm. to do it all. Yeah. Yeah. Just get it done, buy everything bulk instead of just the nickel and diming little pieces. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. Just have a tractor trailer come up and bring you all your fencing and just put it all in. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now you actually also produce, I'm looking here on your Facebook, actually, you actually produce Mm -hmm. um, the, you like get the hides processed and sell those too. We do. Yeah, definitely. We definitely try to try to do um, the hides and the heads. Mm-hmm. as much as possible, just because I don't want to waste anything if I can prevent it. Um, it's a tough market though. Our area does not typically utilize 
hide the mm. heads for their decor. That's more of a, you know, an out West yes. type thing. <laughs> yes. So, so they are a bit of a tough sell. Um, so I have lots of hides and heads in my house. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so now what I've even started to do is, um, the heads, we don't even bleach them anymore. We just, you know, we bury them and let mother nature take care of it and pull them back out of the dirt, you know, about a year later. And I use them as like signposts or, Mm -hmm. you know, number markers for our campsites. You know, we, we utilize them all over, all over the farm for things like that. Um, because I try not to waste it if I can, if I can help it, but Mm -hmm. they're expensive to get done. The hides are very heavy. They're beautiful, Mm. but they're, just as big and heavy as like a big bear hide would be. And so to have that processed is really a lot of work Mm -hmm. um, to have it done and done well. So, cause we've had some done um, and they were not done well. (laughs) So, and that's even worse. Cause then you're like, well, now what do I do with this? Yeah. So where do you have those done? Is that something done locally or you have to send it out? Um, So we do have a local taxidermist who is an award-winning taxidermist who does prep them, but he actually sends them to Pennsylvania to have them uh, um, tanned appropriately. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And you're actually also doing harvest hosts too. We do. Yes, we do do camping on the, on the farm now. Mm -hmm. Very cool. All right. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, We do all kinds of things. (laughs) Yes. Well, you've got a, and you've got a cookbook. I do. Yes. <laughs> yes. So you've got the, the cookbook out there and tell me, has that just been more of it? Was it more your say, Hey, how do I sell more bison? Yes. So that was kind of twofold. Most definitely. How do I sell more bison? But, um, I would say specifically because we are a niche meat, a lot of folks are not prepared to take it home and cook it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't know how to cook bison. And so we kind of walk them through that process. And, you know, through doing that for years, I came up with some really wonderful recipes and decided to just put it all together in one place because, you know, we're still navigating the best place to put recipes for folks, whether it's a postcard and you give it to them. How many postcards do you have? Do you send them Mm -hmm. to your blog? Do you send them to your Facebook? Do you have a different website for it? You know, it's hard to give out those recipes sometimes, um, especially if they buy they bought steaks and roasts and bones and they want to know what to do with all of them. And so now I'm like, here you go, here's a cookbook. And Mm. it tells you how to, how to utilize all of those things. And there's multiple recipes for those things. Um, so it definitely helps me sell more meat, but it actually was just to simplify the recipe process, to be honest with you. Um, there's some really wonderful platforms out there nowadays that really can help you put together a book or a booklet. And, Mm -hmm. um, I utilized blurb specifically for that one, but you can do that now in places like Canva, you know, that'll, that'll do that. Yeah. So I highly recommend that for any farmer. Honestly, I think you need to be telling folks um, or giving folks recipes so that they can utilize, you know, different parts of that animal. Everyone knows how to cook a steak or how to use ground meat, but what about a shank, you know, or an eye of round roast? Or how do you make bone broth? Um, Or how do you use chicken feet? You know, things Mm. like that. You know, a lot of people don't know how to utilize that stuff. But if you give them an easy to follow recipe, all of a sudden they're like, oh, this will be fun to do with the kids, you know, on Thursday night. Yeah, let's do that. So yeah. Yeah, I'd say that's the number. It's it always blows us away with just what people don't know. Um, Like we had 
we showed in a little video how we freeze strawberries and put them in the freezer. And literally, literally, we put strawberries in a cookie sheet, pop it in the freezer for two hours to firm them up, put them in a bag, put them in the freezer. And you wouldn't believe, we must have had a dozen people personally when they were visiting us for strawberry season say, oh my gosh, that was the best. That's the reason I'm here because now I know how to deal with them. And I'm just <laughs> like, really folks? Okay. Um, right. So yeah. So we now know what we're going to focus on for marketing next year, but um, it's uh, it's just the simple things that people don't understand. So talk to us through like, what do you envision um, the farm becoming? Where do you envision the farm going? Yes, I would love to see the farm become more of an event space. Um, we currently do, uh, you know, the butchery events, but we also do a couple of farm to table dinners every year to get folks out to actually see the animals. And, you know, we host a few tours and offer, you know, bison tasting events and things like that. But I would really love to do that on a more regular basis. Uh, we probably only do two dinners, you know, uh-huh. a year right now, and maybe host six tours, six farm tours throughout the year. I'd love to do that almost every weekend uh-huh. um, and get more people out there to help them understand where their food comes from, um, to check out the bison because they're just cool. And I love the educational aspect again, you know, kind of from the recipe perspective, right? Like, so what do you do with this meat? Um, you know, what other types of meats could you bring in that complement bison and things like that? Like, uh, we make a breakfast casserole that has pork sausage in it mixed with our bison. Um, I would, I'd, I'd love to see us do more of those events to get more people out to to really experience the bison and talk about farming and talk about farm fresh food that they can put on their tables. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now you yeah. also do some consulting too. talk a little bit about the holistic um, management and the consulting you do through that platform. I do. Yeah. So I just recently got into that just because, you know, we were looking to become ecologically verified from the savory Institute ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then through that process, you know, I, um, really enjoyed the visits and talking, you know, through a lot of, a lot of the verification process and, you know, learning about grasses with my mentor and my background actually, um, is in education. So I have my degree as a nurse, but then I went back to school and have a master's degree in education. And Mm -hmm. so I love to teach. And now I get lots of questions from farmers just because I do raise an exotic animal. And they're like, well, how did you do that? Why did you do that? How do you market that? You know, and we start really having some conversations from that perspective. And then they ask me to help them market their animals. (laughs) So, so I was like, okay, I mean, I definitely want to help people do that. Um, and it actually really evolved into helping a lot of other bison farmers and bison ranchers because now I sit on the board of the National Bison Association and I'm the region eight um, director. And so I have folks who want to get into the business calling me all the time and I love to help them out. And it's, it's great. And we do that, but I can only help out so many people and so many hours. And we really want to dive deep into some of their business stuff. And that's great. And so I decided to get into the consulting side to make that a attainable, concise, part of our business that I can replicate for lots of people to help them out. Mm. So, yeah. 
Very cool. Well, anything else you'd like to share before we go? Gosh, I mean, interestingly enough, I think you actually hit all of it in that time span because <laughs> it's a lot going on. Um, but yeah, basically we have just been having a ton of fun raising bison and we have found that it is a profitable venture. And I think mm. not just because it's bison, I think any farmer can have a comfortably profitable farm. They just have to be willing to set themselves up appropriately and put in the work in the right places. And they can have that farm life that they envisioned and also the money in the bank that they can utilize to do other fun things with. Mm -hmm. um, I no longer am a nurse. Like I am a full-time farmer. Um, I was able to step away from, from that full-time job and just do full-time farming because we are able to run a profitable business, farm business. And it's mm -hmm. been cool. We've had fun with it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a great way to raise a family and it's a great play, way to make a living. Definitely. Definitely. We love it. <laughs> All right. Well, Liz, thank you again for your time today. Can't wait to share this with our audience. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. Again, I appreciate it too. Thanks for all the questions and for inviting me. It's been great. Absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Steward. Steward is transforming agriculture by equipping regenerative farms and food systems with the capital they need to grow. As a mission-driven financial partner, Steward works closely with agriculture businesses to scale their operations, improve the health of their lands and waters, and bolster local to regional food systems. To date, Stewart has provided over 15 million in business loans to fund 75 unique projects, backed by more than 1,500 participating lenders. Stewart is proud to be a certified B Corp. Seek financing or support a loan campaign at gosteward.com. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer Podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.